Well, good morning. Oh, that's, that's fulfilled all my desires ever to be a teacher. That's a, like an assembly. <laughs> good morning, everyone. Do you want to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians in your pew Bibles? Um, now, if that instruction to find Thessalonians fills you with horror as you find yourself flicking through the shorter letters of Paul, unsure when you're going to land, I call them the Ians, then uh, I'll teach you a little trick. Can't claim this is a car original, but it helps if you think of the Ians with the five vowels, A, E, I, O, and U, just in case you had forgotten them since school days. So we have A, Galatians, E, Ephesians, I, Philippians, O, Colossians, and we have to be a little creative with the U to have one and two Thessalonians. So, having gifted you with that Bible mnemonic, then let us pray as we look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians 3. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here with us today, and we ask that as we turn to your word, that we may hear you speak by your spirit, that you would encourage us and equip us to live holy lives and to live in light of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're currently in the middle of a sermon series looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And as we've read through the letter so far, we've seen some themes clearly threading throughout. So we've seen the obvious affection and care that Paul had for these Thessalonian Christians. We've heard his passion for the good news of Jesus Christ and a fervent desire for life to be lived in light of Jesus' return from the dead and his anticipated return. All of these themes are apparent here in these first verses of the section we had read to us, so starting in 3.12. We find Paul sharing with the Thessalonians his prayer for them. It's almost like he's gathering together the thoughts and themes of his letter so far and bringing them before God and then giving us a glimpse of that fervent prayer on behalf of the Thessalonians. So he says in 3.12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There are two phrases which jump out to me from these verses, and they give us a, a framework to consider what Paul is communicating in the passage we're looking at today. First of all, there's this phrase, strengthen your hearts in holiness and increase and abound in love. So having expressed his care and concern for the Thessalonians and rejoiced in their response to the gospel message of Jesus, Paul's prayerful desire for them is that God may strengthen their hearts in holiness and that they would increase and abound in love. So consider those aspects in turn. First of all, strengthen your hearts in holiness. My parents seem to think that the reason I became a Christian coming from a non-church going home is because I found in religion a set of rules to follow. They say that I was always quite a natural rule keeper. My mum tells a story from when I was about six years old where she was phoned from my school saying, we just don't know what to do with her. She's inconsolable. We we don't even know what we said. We don't even know how we got to this state, but we don't know what to do. Help. She said, well, tell me what happened. What happened beforehand, before she started crying? And they said, well, all we said was, we're going through to the school hall to watch a cartoon about road safety. And she started to cry. 
my mum said, oh, I think I might know what the problem is. Could you give the phone to me? The issue was that in my family, cartoons were bad. We were not allowed to watch cartoons. And so when they had said we were going through to the school hall to watch a cartoon, I got rather upset at this tension. And so all it took was just a bit of reassurance that this one was a good cartoon, and off I skipped to the school hall very merrily. So understanding that I was an instinctive rule keeper, it was understandable that this decision as a teenager to follow Jesus would be interpreted in relation to a perception that Christianity was simply a moral framework, a rule book for ethical living. And if we approach this passage with that mindset, then it's easy to interpret Paul's words here about holy behavior and conduct as the issuing of moral standards, a set of restrictive rules. In our day and age, there's a a deep suspicion and resistance to anyone else presuming to know enough about me and about my situation to dare to tell me how to live, how to behave, how to regulate the most private and intimate parts of my life. So how on earth do we make sense of what Paul writes here? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that's sex outside of marriage in case you're not clear, that each one of you knows how to control your body in holiness and honour, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one wrongs or exploits a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we've already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this rejects not human authority, but God, who also gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's verses 3 to 8, if you're following. Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the gift of the Holy Spirit, of God's presence with them at all times and in all places. The instructions that he gives them in the name of Christ are not therefore external regulations to which they must painstakingly conform. They're part of the outworking of this new life maintained within them by the Holy Spirit. Sexual immorality is not the whole of holiness, but it is an important part of it. And it was one that particularly needed to be stressed when converts from Greek paganism were being instructed in the Christian way. F.F. Bruce, writing about this passage, comments this, the idea of confining sexual intercourse within marriage was foreign to Greek conventional morality of the period. The general attitude is illustrated by a quotation by a contemporary orator. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. So, even more in their time than in ours, the idea of Paul speaking about changes and restrictions in sexual behaviour as a response to their newfound faith in Jesus Christ is radical and demanding. Paul's desire for the Thessalonians is their increasing growth in faith, and in Christ-likeness. So in verse 3, he prefaces his instructions on sex by saying, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, for those of you who are doing the Alpha course at the moment, this word sanctification might ring some bells. In the Alpha videos a couple of weeks ago, Nicky Gumbel said he was going to define two big theological terms, justification and sanctification. And he defined justification as the moment when we are made right with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That happens instantly, and it's complete. 
There is absolutely nothing we can do by our own effort simply to accept this gift of grace. Sanctification, however, is not instantaneous. It's progressive and relational. It's never-ending. It's a, a process over time by which we become increasingly more and more like Jesus in the way that we live. And that's clear from what Paul writes here in verse 1. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. Paul has already established in chapter 2, verse 4, that this idea of pleasing God means that he seeks not to please people, but to please God. Not to earn God's favour, but to delight in the one that he loves and who loves him. It's the same pattern that we see in Jesus' life, who himself said in John 8, I always do what pleases God the Father. Holiness, then, is becoming more like Jesus in every area of our lives, including those most private and intimate parts. Over 200 years ago, an itinerant preacher called John Wesley, you may have heard of him, he challenged those who heard him speak to take seriously the need for holiness in their own lives. And his followers committed to a personal and collective pursuit of holiness. Members of John Wesley's so-called Holy Club spent time daily in their private devotions reflecting on a list of searching questions. And if you Google John Wesley's Holy Club, you can find the complete list of these questions. There's quite a lot of them. But maybe it's a challenge you might even over Advent want to set yourself to do this daily, to, to try and reflect on some of these questions. Here are a few to give you a flavour. Am I honest in all my acts and words? Do I confidentially pass on to another what was told to me in confidence? Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work or habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying or self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Am I enjoying prayer? Do I disobey God in anything? You can imagine how spending time deliberately reflecting on questions like these forces us to take a long, hard look at ourselves. In light of our own growth in holiness, our journey to becoming increasingly Jesus-like as the Holy Spirit works in us, and through us. But learning to live well is not just an individual pursuit, it's a, it's a shared responsibility, and it affects not just us as individuals, but us as a community. Paul uses a phrase, in the Lord Jesus, to speak of the pursuit of holiness. Together we're swept up in this shared task of being his body, displaying God's love to the world. And so Paul moves on to point out the need to increase and abound in love. Jesus summed up the Old Testament law, identifying the commandment to love God with all our being and to love one's neighbour as oneself. The writer of 1 John gave the pithy statement which encapsulates this, he who loves God should love his brother also. The Thessalonian Christians seem to have learned by instinct 
informed by the Spirit, of the importance of loving one another and others. Verse 9, we read, Now concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Paul affirms and commends this love, but he spells out various practical ways in which that love needs to be lived out. It's apparent there are some forms of conduct which are just incompatible with brotherly love. We've considered one, the sexual invasion of another's person and household, a situation where lust, that is the the desire to take from one's own gratification and pleasure, is the driving urge rather than tender love and care for another. But there are many other ways, many other contexts in which we find ourselves not living the way of love, but rather seeking our own comfort, pleasure or needs rather than expressing care and compassion and concern for others. Paul here identifies some relevant examples from the reports that he's heard about the daily lives of the Thessalonians. It seems that some of the Christians had decided to give up work, and they were instead living in dependence on the giving of others into the communal pot of money from which the poor were supported and provided for. Instead of working, they were spending their days not in fruitful labour, but in gossip and in a desire to sort out everyone else's life rather than their own. Later in chapter 5, Paul calls those living in this way atokai, translated as idlers. And that Greek word was used as, um, to describe an army in complete disarray, to undisciplined soldiers who broke rank rather than marching properly or following orders. And the word's also been found on a stone found by archaeologists which was a contract for a teenage apprentice in which this word was used to describe playing truant from his duties to a master to whom he was apprenticed. Both of those images, the, the poorly disciplined soldier and the truanting apprentice, help us to see what Paul is pointing to here. Not simply to love for one another as the nice thing to do, but also to the discipline of love as the essential underlying necessity for Christians to live well together. A lack of love hurts the individual, but it also damages the community. It diminishes the church's credibility with outsiders. American theologian Stanley Hauerwas writes a lot about how important it is for our witness that our life displays the holiness and love which Paul urges in these verses in 1 Thessalonians. Hauerwas emphasizes the need for us to see this as a task in which we encourage and, and challenge one another rather than just seeing it as an individual pursuit. And he writes, The church cannot avoid the importance of mutual upbringing and correction. We seek out the other because it is from the other that we learn how well or how poorly we have made the story of Jesus our story. For the church is finally known by the character of the people who constitute it. And if we lack that character, the world rightly draws the conclusion that the God we worship is in fact a false God. So may we be people who take seriously this challenge to live in holiness and love so that we grow increasingly like Jesus. As I come to a close this morning, I want to pray for us using the words of St. Paul to the Thessalonians. Let us pray. May the Lord 
make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Thank you,